If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. At least I'm not alone. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and. Uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams' hands for a copy time with this and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who's, who's life would be. I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering today, Barney? I'm going to talk about John Lynch, Australia's first and possibly worst serial killer. How come I've never heard of him? Well, probably because it all happened in 1830. Oh, ye oldie. Ye oldie. I'm going to have fun with this. He's Irish too. Oh, uh oh. <laughs> How about you, Tara? Well, this week I looked into a widow named Dorothea Craft who had a rough time trying to raise her daughter on a failing farm in the early 1900s in South Africa. We've both gone ye oldie. Mm. You know what that normally means for us? What? A rollicking good time. A rollicking good time. Anyway, after relying on the kindness of strangers backfired horribly, she felt she had no choice but to turn to murder. Ooh, murder. Mm, I wish I could say it like Baz from Extraordinary Stories says it. Murder. I can't. Mm, I know. It didn't work. I love that Scotsman. (laughs) God bless him. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, generous, charming, witty and incredibly imaginative patrons. Now, if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Okay, Tara, I think it's time for us to get murdery. 
Dorothea Croft was a widow in her late 30s who lived with her teenage daughter Polly on a farm named Trofontine in South Africa in the early 1900s. Nikki fucking Bronze, eh? Although she's African. Okay. It's a South African accent. Have you got it out of your system yet? No. I believe that it's kind of like doing an Aussie accent. No one gets it quite right. African. Okay, that's enough. Oh, our 1% of South African listeners just turned into no percent. What was the name of that farm again, Tara? Trofontaine. Trofontaine. That's Mm. a lovely name for a farm. Thanks for asking, Barney. I'm going to buy you that farm just so you've bought a farm. Really? Because that would simplify my life at this point. I'm going to give you a bucket and then I'm going to kick it. Oh, whatever. Although she'd owned the farm, it was actually really small and run down with very poor soil and years of drought had meant the crops hadn't thrived despite the back-breaking hard labour Dorothea had put into it. Uh, crap dirt, hey? Really shit dirt. Shit I mean, dirt. it wishes it had shit in it. It was just like hard, dry dirt. No, you need, you need good dirt to farm, apparently. Well, yeah, obviously. You need good dirt. As such, she and Polly were struggling to get by. Louis Tumpowski was a Jewish immigrant from the United States who arrived in South Africa in 1887. He decided to set up home in Johannesburg, which was a small but rapidly growing mining town at the time. Realising that the area was full of gold prospectors who required supplies, Tumpowski started a business selling food, clothes and tools to them. And probably blood diamonds. Ah, uh, all kinds of stuff. Prospectors, they were they were a mealy bunch, i got to say. He was a shrewd and calculating businessman. Although he had a multitude of suppliers, he would regularly visit farms in the area on the lookout for a better deal on products he could on-sell for a higher profit. Quite the businessman. Mm. Dorothea first met 54-year-old Louis Tumpowski in 1914 when he visited her farm in the hopes of securing another source of fresh produce for his thriving business. Although she didn't have much to sell him, not a lot of fresh produce going on there, they did get talking and Tumpowski proved to be a very good listener as Dorothea told him about her struggles with farm life and how hard it was as a female trying to run the place as the local people she employed as labourers didn't like taking orders from a woman. No. Well, you can't trust a no-dick, can you? Well, who who does, you know? Oh, no one. I mean, the penis is where the brains and business sense is, so anyone without one doesn't have a clue, right? Yeah, and, and let's not even talk about the balls. Well, yeah, that's where all of the um, networking savvy comes from, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Yeah. This makes me sad and want to hurt you. She told Tumpowski she was hoping to find a man who was interested in becoming the manager and running the farm. As he was leaving, she asked him to keep an eye out for someone who might be interested in the job. Now, two months later, the scheming rat-faced Tumpowski returned to the farm with an enticing proposal for Dorothea. Ooh, what was it? Well, he offered to lease and run the farm himself at a rate of £25 per year. He also said that she and Polly could remain living there too if they so desired. Well, that sounds like a sweet deal. Well, it did. A contract was drawn up by a firm of Johannesburg lawyers to make the arrangement legal and binding. Dorothea was so delighted by this idea that she did a happy wobbly-bottomed dance and didn't read the fine print of the document before signing it on May 21st, 1914. Oh, you got to read that fine print. <gasps> oh, Dorothea, no. This way trouble lies. Tampaski moved his belongings into Trufontaine, where things between he and Dorothea got mighty complicated and super sexy. Ooh, do tell. Despite all the banging, however, the farm failed to prosper. 
I guess they couldn't bang it into submission. You can't bang a farm into submission. Uh, well, that's they found that out the hard way. You know, you can, but if it's got shit dirt, it's harder. Well, yeah. Crappy dirt. Can't, you can't, bang, can't do a lot with can't that. Can't bang crappy dirt into submission. <laughs> I'm sure you've tried, haven't you? <laughs> the price of land increased dramatically in the next four years, and in 1918, Dorothea decided to sell the property as she'd be able to make enough money to comfortably support herself and Polly. It was only after telling Tompowski about her plan that she learnt that the agreement she had signed contained an option clause giving him the right to buy the farm from her at a price of £35 per 100 square metres once the lease was up. Now, that was like half of what it was worth. Shit in a bucket. Well, just shit in a man, really. Yeah. Shit in man form. Dorothea was shocked and appalled and felt more than a little ripped off. Did the sexy time count for nothing? Oh, come on. Come on. She was also pissed at herself for blindly believing what she was told and not reading the fine print on the contract. Hmm. Dorothea tried to kick her own ass, but after finding that impossible, she consulted with a lawyer. But she was told that the contract was rock solid and there was nothing she could do to get out of it. You can't kick yourself in the ass. It's impossible. I hate. You said this to me like a while back and I'm like, yes, I can. And then you're like, no, not with your heels, with your toes. Yeah. Yeah, I can't kick myself in the ass with my toes. That's right. Yes. Why are you so thrilled about this? It's kind of just not like basic information, isn't it? Yeah. It's like you can't uh, kiss your own elbow. Oh, uh, you know I wanted to just try them, but it wouldn't, <laughs> you really, wouldn't you have... Did, you did try, I looked you? at it. You looked at that. I looked at my elbow, but can you imagine how scintillating that would be for the listeners? Five oh. minutes of me trying to kiss my freaking <laughs> elbow. Also, I think I could do it. No, I can't. You can't. Anyway. <laughs> I love that I wasn't going to do it and then I had to try. Anyway. Dorothea didn't give up that easily. Good. She thought up a cunning plan to use her feminine charms to convince Tumpowski to marry her. Thinking she could have the option clause in the rental contract quashed in a prenuptial agreement. That's a, it's a solid plan. Well, as solid as any she's going to have, possibly oh. the solidest. However, Tumpowski had been getting the milk for free for so long, he was sick of the sight of it and thought he might actually be lactose intolerant. Not such a solid plan. Mm, He refused to even consider the possibility of marrying her. Talk about adding insult to injury, right? Mm. As this plan was well and truly foiled, Dorothea did what any woman in her position would do. She turned to witchcraft. Yeah, I was going to suggest that. (laughs) You didn't have to. Luckily for her, there was a witch doctor living on a neighbouring property, so she didn't have to go very far. Oh, he's going to have a cool name, isn't he? Well, the witch doctor's name was Jim Bird, but he preferred that people called him Whiskers. And there it is. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a cat's name, really, isn't it? So Dorothea visited Whiskers and asked him to make her a love potion that would make Tumpowski truly, madly, deeply, helplessly enamoured with her. Ooh. When she put some of this construct potion into Tumpowski's tea, it did things to his stomach. Not I'm so in love, nice, happy butterfly things, but more like crampy, pukey, pooey things. Well, that doesn't sound... What did you call it? Cuntstruck potion? Mm. <laughs> that doesn't sound like cuntstruck potion. I think he got gutstruck. Yeah. Tumpowski was violently ill and accused Dorothea of trying to poison him. Well, she... 
She did. Well, no. She tried to make him love her with poison. It's different, Barney. It's still poisoning Maybe him. only women will understand. I don't know. <laughs> she didn't know it was poison. She trusted Whiskers. I mean, come on. A witch doctor named Whiskers sounds trustworthy, right? Especially if he's a neighbour. Well, apparently he had five good reviews on Yelp. <laughs> he must have, and he wrote them all himself. Oh, yeah. After this incident, Tampowski wisely refused to take any food or drinks from her again. He was getting his own beer after that. I'm sure he would, yes. Makes sense. Now, instead of deciding her neighbour was a shithouse witch doctor who couldn't even make a basic love potion, Dorothea paid Whiskers another visit. She had, however, given up on love and was wanting a spell for vengeance. So at least we have some emotional progress here. Well, he did have those good, those five good reviews. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, this time she had to procure a lock of Tumpowski's hair, which was mixed with a magic potion and placed in a sacred matchbox that Dorothea had to bury under the door to Tumpowski's room. Ooh. This process, Whiskers assured her, would make him so ill that he would quickly kill over and die. No mass, no fuss. Sounds great. But instead of making him die, this spell had no effect whatsoever. Not a sausage. It didn't even give him the hiccups. I'm starting to doubt this witch doctor uh, Whiskers. Yeah, you think? Whiskers? I don't know, but those five good reviews. I know. Maybe they were lies. It must be legitimate. (laughs) Yeah. So much sarcastic faith. Now, by the time it had become clear to her that Whiskers' magic had failed yet again, Dorothea was frantic to find another way to hold on to her property. Now, it's at this point that Hermanus Swartz enters the story. Hermanus Swartz? Mm-hmm. I've got a terrible case of Hermanus Swartz. He sounds like a go-getter. Tell me about him. Well, Swartz was an army deserter with few prospects who was in love with 17-year-old Polly Craft, who was Dorothea's daughter. Oh, yeah. Although it's actually rumoured that he and Dorothea also knocked boots on several occasions. The thing is, though, Dorothea was living an unconventional life as an unmarried woman running a farm in South Africa in the early 1900s. So it's entirely possible that neighbourhood folk assumed she was a demon slut who was just banging everyone. Yeah, I don't think we should fuck shame Dorothea, you know. She's doing her best. Come on. Absolutely. She didn't have a lot to work with. She's just trying to kill the guy that cheated her out of her land. I don't Come feel on. that she has a lot of options right now. I'm not no. condoning murder, but I, I also get her plight, you know. Yeah. Swartz was a regular visitor to the farm and knew of Dorothea's tragic plight. He figured that if he helped knock off Tampowski and then married Polly, he would eventually end up owning the property. Solid plan. And they say chivalry is dead. Please tell me Whiskers comes back into this, though. I'm not going to say a word. You're just going to have to wait and see. Schwartz suggested that they ditch the shitty magic and just have Tempowski killed. But they didn't know any cut-price assassins. So they approached Whiskers, (laughs) who said that he was prepared (laughs) to commit the murder in return for a payment of £100 and a few openings of Dorothea's furry checkbook, if you get what I mean. Uh, no. Oh. What could possibly go wrong? Well, nothing. On the night of February 2nd, 1918, the farm was being pummeled by a violent thunderstorm. Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. After Tumpowski went to bed, Dorothea, Swartz, Whiskers and three local labourers got together to discuss the final touches of the dastardly dipshit deed in the living room of the farmhouse. Well, that sounds like a fun night. 
Her daughter Polly hid out in her bedroom as she didn't want tickets to this shit show. Fair enough. As lightning flashed across the sky, Schwartz took whiskers to the door of Tumpowski's room and pushed the witch doctor slash assassin inside. Whiskers jumped into action, beating Tumpowski about the skull with a knob carry, which is a short stick with a knob at the top, traditionally used as a weapon by the indigenous people of South Africa. Ah, knob stick. Uh Uh-huh, hit me with your knobby stick. Hit me slowly, hit me quick. And now every time Whiskers tried to leave, sure that Tumpowski was dead, Swartz would say that he was still alive and shove Whiskers back into the room to beat him more with his knobstick. <laughs> it's not a sentence I ever thought I was going to say. It's pretty much my favourite <laughs> sentence of all time. <laughs> that might actually, might actually be uh, tombstone-worthy for me. Anyway, yeah. eventually Whiskers gave up. He got really paranoid, saying that he was worried that someone had somehow seen him committing the attack through the window. Yeah, well, somebody shut the curtains. He wasn't Michael Caine. Determined to get the job done, Schwartz tied a leather thong around Tumpowski's neck to strangle him, and then he cut his throat with a pocket knife just to be sure he was dead. Ah, double killed him. It was actually a triple kill because the the knobs on the head had actually done it. The knobstick, yeah. Man, so Dorothea grabbed a nearby blanket and used it to mop up the litres of blood gushing from Tumpowski's throat. Whiskers took off into the night, refusing the offer of another £100 if he would use his magic to conceal the crime. Abracadabra, forensics be gone. (laughs) Pretty much what they were hoping (laughs) for. The faith they have in this guy with a cat's name astounds me. Anyway... With help from Dorothea and Swartz, buried it in a hole they had dug out under a garbage tip near the garden. Cool. While they were outside in the pouring rain burying the body, there was a knock at the front door. Come in. No. A couple with a sick child had come to the farmhouse seeking help as it was lit up as though everyone was awake. Nobody answered their knocks and someone quickly put out all the lights. Oh, no, don't come in. There's nobody here. Exactly. The couple thought that this was very strange indeed, especially when they heard the sounds of people digging out the back. Okay, we can't do the whole rest of the story. We've got to, we've got to call it quits oh, at some Barney, point. Shut on up. Yeah, well, I mean... Barney, you're a fucking idiot. Just shut up. By the next morning, all evidence of the crime had been cleaned up. Sick of this shit, Polly up and left town headed for Johannesburg. Now alone, Dorothea complained to anyone within hearing distance that she'd been abandoned by Tumpowski. For a short period of time, she even went to stay with a neighbour because she said she was afraid to be by herself on the farm. No, she's acting the part. She certainly is. She doesn't have a lot of options, though. Yeah, true. Nearly three months after his mysterious disappearance, Tumpowski's sister, Mrs Saltman, received a letter from a man who was interested in purchasing the option on the farm. He said he'd been told Tumpowski had left the property months ago and wanted her brother's new address. When Mrs Saltman and her husband began asking questions about her brother, they became increasingly suspicious. Eventually, she approached the police and asked them to investigate her brother's disappearance. Dorothea told the police who visited the farm that she was not concerned for Tumpowski's safety. She said that he'd taken off in the middle of the night without paying his yearly rent and asked the police to try and get the money he apparently owed her from his sister. Oh, that bastard, he left me. In the middle of the night, In the no middle less. of the night, gone. 
Mrs. Saltman called bullshit on this theory, as her brother's financial affairs had been in order at the time of his disappearance. In fact, he was quite wealthy. It seemed ripping off widows was as financially rewarding as getting to bang them was convenient. Mrs. Saltman was able to provide the head of the Transvaal Detective Services a copy of the contract between Dorothea and her brother. After learning of the option clause in the agreement, detectives considered it was motive enough for murder. Mm, time to start kicking some doors in, hey? Mm, time to start digging in the yard. They also received a tip-off from the couple with the sick kid about the nighttime thunderstorm digging that they'd heard around the time of Tumpowski's disappearance. Yeah, they heard come come in, but then... Then they, they heard... No, 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 we're not home. Yeah, I don't think they heard any of that, and but they, they did hear some digging. They heard some digging, yeah. Without a body, police were unable to prove anything, but a search of the farm wasn't sanctioned until July 20th, 1920. The police and eight convict labourers spent six weeks at the farm searching wells, pulling up floorboards, disassembling walls and digging up crops. A £100 award was offered for information on Tumpowski's whereabouts, but nobody had come forward with anything pertinent. So they had eight convicts to dig yeah. up the yard. What were their names? Uh, Dasher, Dancer, Sneezy, sounds, Greedy, sounds, Vanity, nah. Smurfette, Gargamel nah. and Azrael. Sounds to me like some pretty shitty research on your behalf there, Tara. No, nope, that was entirely correct. In fact, it was actually culturally significant because a lot of animations, including the Smurfs, took a note from this book when they named... They're reindeer and Smurfs. What the fuck are you talking about? You're the one who brought it up. The police had come to hear of the not-so-great witch doctor Jim Bird, a.k.a. Whiskers. Ah, Whiskers is back. Mm, Yay! Whiskers is always back during the course of their investigations. And on August 20th, they went to question him. Wow. You know you know how they found him? Oh, they, they just went, here, boy. They put out a saucer of milk. Something like that. And he came a-running. Well, also, Whiskers was right terrified of the cops, and he quickly blabbed about the part he played in the murder. But because he'd run away like a cowardly kitten before Tampowski's body was disposed of, he had no idea where they'd hidden the corpse. Mm, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I could use magic, but I'm shit at it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so following this confession, Whiskers was put to work with the eight convicts digging up the farm in the hope of finding Tampowski's body. At night, he was kept in lockup with the convicts so he wouldn't run away. And he didn't magic his way out of it because he was shit at magic. Uh, I wrote my own reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I like how that was whispered on the wind. On September 20th, 1920, almost two and a half years after Tampowski had been murdered... Whiskers found his body buried under the edge of the garbage pit near the back door of the farmhouse. Maybe he did have magical powers after all. They were just really slow. They dug a lot of holes, though. They dug... Everything was a hole. They took the bloody house apart. They took everything apart. It was apart. only a matter of time, really. <laughs> Although the body was badly decomposed, a finger on the left hand had a signet ring on it, which acquaintances of Tompowski's were able to identify. A local cobbler also recognised the boots that the corpse was wearing. So Louis Tumpowski had finally been found. Oh, I, I remember fixing those boots. He came around and got me to fix them all the time. Um, anyway, the post-mortem showed that Tumpowski had suffered a fractured skull from the knob carry. Oh, uh, from the knob stick. And there were marks across his throat that showed knife damage. There was now no doubt that Tumpowski had indeed been murdered. Really? By who? Shortly afterwards, the police... <laughs> have you not been listening to Sorry. any of this? Oh, my God. 
Uh, sometimes I feel like I might need to get a new Barney because <laughs> my old one's broken. <laughs> Shortly afterwards, the police arrested Dorothea, who had actually gotten married in the interim and moved away from the farm. Oh, yeah, her. I remember her. Yeah, she's no whiskers, is she? Yeah, knobstick and stuff, right? Yeah, well, kind of. Oh. Um, they also arrested Schwartz and the three African labourers. Now, Whiskers had struck a deal with the police who accepted his offer to turn King's evidence in exchange for immunity from prosecution and a ball of wool to play with. <laughs> he batted it around. Well, surely yeah. he wouldn't be much of a credible witness, though. He, did, he does have those five good reviews on you. Well, yes, they were, pretty, they I, were. I wrote them myself. <laughs> it was whispered on the wind. Um, so the trial of Dorothea began on June 13th, 1921. Because she was in the very unusual situation of being a white woman facing a murder charge in South Africa... The court was filled to capacity with lollygaggers and rubbernecks mm, every single day. Salacious. Mm. The state prosecutor began his address to the jury by pointing out that for a guilty verdict to be returned, it wasn't necessary for the state to prove that Dorothea had murdered Tumpowski herself, only that she had orchestrated the crime. Only that she had pushed whiskers in the door. Uh, well, actually, Schwartz did that, so I don't know. Oh, yeah. The case for the prosecution hinged on the testimony of Whiskers, who the judge had pointed out was, by his own admission, a liar, adulterer, witch doctor and murderer. But he did have those five good reviews. I wrote them. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, the evidence implicating both Dorothea and Swartz in the murder was so overwhelming that the jury had no hesitation in returning guilty verdicts for both of them. So Dorothea and Swartz were later hanged at Pretoria Central Prison. This meant that Dorothea had the dubious honour of being the first woman hanged in the Union of South Africa. The three labourers whom Whiskers claimed had been accessories to the murder of Tampowski were committed to trial but later acquitted due to lack of evidence. Oh, that's good because they were just doing what they were Oh, they were just, you know, they were being paid to do stuff and they just did it. Um, What a a sordid little tale. Mm. I um, obviously murder's wrong. But I feel bad for Dorothea as well because it's like she was in a corner. Although she didn't really show a lot of good judgment. No. But what of Polly? She went to she went to Johannesburg. Uh yeah. Um, she actually ended up moving to Sydney and opening up a vape shop under the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yeah, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, that's not true. Um, yeah. she took off to Joburg and got on with her life and right. left all of this fuckery behind. Oh, good, good. It was a fine tale. So, Tara. Yes, Barney? What time is it? Is it True Crime Nerd Time? It is. Would you like to tell the listeners what that is? True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that scratches your true crime itch. Oh, my itch is constantly there. You can record your voice. Just do it on your phone. It'll probably work, mm-hmm. maybe. Or write it and we'll play it or read it out. See our website for more details on that. Well, you just email us, really. Yeah, yeah bloody murder podcast at gmail.com. Do you have one for us? I do have you one. You better have one after I, all that. I do have one. I have one from Lola Romancing the Stone. Oh, what's her name? Lola Stone. Oh, okay. I just put that bit in the middle. Because you're awesome. Because I love Kathleen Turner. <laughs> oh, I used to think she was the most attractive woman on earth. She still is. No. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> <laughs> hey, old, old people are hot too. Hey, Danny DeVito's awesome. Can I get out of it with that? He's pretty hot. 
I would totally hang out with him. I would totally hang out with Danny DeVito. Okay, Lola Stone has written here, The first book that really launched my interest in reading true crime is Homicide by David Simon. It's a classic true crime book which tells the story of the writer spending a year following around the Baltimore homicide detectives. It's also a book that I bought you for your birthday about three years ago. You did. You did. I, I read that. Yeah. It's, it's great. Um, this took place in the late 80s and at the time crime was rampant in Baltimore and the detectives were kept more than busy. Over the course of 1988, the year that he was with them, there were nearly 300 murders in Baltimore. Wow. That's got to be more than we get in a year in Australia. Yeah, I think we get 400-ish or something. Okay, well, slightly less. Yeah. While he does go into the detail of some of these murders, he also records the smaller minutiae of the detectives' day-to-day tasks and when they're just drinking beers and bullshitting with each other. So, yeah, he was embedded with the Baltimore homicide. For an um, entire year. For an entire year. And he came up with some cool creative shit from that and the book, obviously. He certainly did. It's considered a classic of the genre, partially because of the raw and realistic portrayal he paints of what must have been an incredibly stressful job. Simon doesn't mince words, nor does he sugarcoat anything. The reality of the detectives' lives is dark and gritty beyond anything imaginable. It's visiting the crime scenes of a murdered child on a road littered with trash early in the morning when you're either still drunk or you're on your way to being hungover. Oh, that's the worst time. It's obsessing about the same murdered child and regretting that it may never be solved because there's always a new murder to work. Ah, the urgency of it all. It's an unflinching portrayal of this reality. It gave me a harsher glimpse into the life of a detective than I was ready for. It led me to awful truths that I didn't know existed and revealed a lot about class tension in relation to crime. The show spawned a series, Homicide Life in the Streets. And? It also inspired the TV show, The Wire. Oh, yeah. That's our guy. Oh, yeah. Which Simon ran for five seasons. It's one of my favourite shows and is critically acclaimed for its realism mixed with incredible storytelling. The first few seasons are akin to a Shakespearean tragedy set in modern-day Baltimore. Oh, yeah. The whole, all of it's worth a watch or a a rewatch. Absolutely. I highly recommend both the book and the wider true crime fans. They have the quality of being able to transport the reader or viewer into the world of these detectives and this quality causes both to feel emotionally gripping. They also exposed me to a world I never knew existed which led to a lot of critical thinking and restructuring of my worldview. In short, they opened my eyes. That's what you want from something. What's the name of the book again for the listeners, please? Homicide by David Simon. Yep. And if you haven't watched The Wire, oh, I recommend it. It's, um, look, it's a fictionalised account, but it is so great. Yeah, it's pretty tired, isn't it? Uh, it's also considered one of the very best TV series ever made. Now, we watched it apart at the time. And then we watched it together and again later. And then we later. did a rewatch, maybe about five years ago. I know. Tara? I think we might yeah. be due for another one. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I still have it. So, yeah. 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 Thank you, Lola Stone, for putting that in. And if you want to submit to us, True Crime Nerd Time, Bloody Murder Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, please send in your recommendations. Um, we're both such big true crime nerds, and I'm sure the listeners, you guys are too. Yeah. And we'd really love to know what it is about true crime, like what your favourite things that you've found are. Yeah. It's about sharing your discoveries. That's right. You can add to this conversation. Yeah, and we'd love to hear from you. Mm, absolutely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, so Barney, I think that it might be time for you to tell me a dastardly tale of murder. Or murders, in your case. Well, that's right, Tara. In the southern highlands of New South Wales lies the village of Berrimer. The sleepy little town is located on the old Hume Highway between Canberra and Sydney. Historic Berrimer is a quaint little vale steeped in history. It has a museum, an old courthouse and Australia's oldest pub, the Surveyor General. Oh, when was that uh, actually like founded? 1830. You know what? I bet we have some listeners in Europe who live in houses older than that. Oh, my garage is older than that. Yeah, pretty much. Like, uh, we're Australian. This country's only been colonised for, like, a little mm, over 200 a years. barbecue in my backyard's older than that. It is also home to Australia's first and possibly worst serial killer. 150 years before the term serial killer was even a thing, John Lynch wandered the Berrimer district murdering people until he finally met his dangly end at the gallows at the old Berrimer jail. The story of John Lynch, nasty convict, shitful farmer, wannabe robber and serial killer, begins in 1813 in Carvin Island when he plopped out of his mother. Oh, okay, so he wasn't born an orphan. No, he plopped out of his mother. I I just said that. (laughs) I'm just checking because remember last week. Oh, yeah, well, yes. Bold Jack Donahue was born an orphan. Apparently so. 1813 in Carvin Island when he plopped out of his mother. Not much is known about his early days, but it is rumoured that he murdered his father. So he plopped out of his mother, grabbed the nearest weapon and killed his dad. I think he did it with his bare hands. Oh, you know what? He probably did it with his umbilical cord, wrapped it around his dad and went... Makes sense. In 1830, when he was 17, he was convicted of false pretenses. Oh, what does that mean back then? Well, he was impersonating a police officer or something. Is that kind of like when you do an Irish accent? Could you be arrested for that? (laughs) Well, I'm quarter Irish. Only a quarter. Oh, oh. scuzz bucket. I'm bog Irish as fuck. Who's that? <laughs> so, false pretenses. And two years later, he was sentenced to penal transportation to the colony of Australia. Oh, no one wanted to go there. No one wants your knob on a ship to Australia. Mm-mm. Lynch left Ireland on the ship Dunvegan Castle, stick it in your arsehole, <laughs> on July 1st, 1832, sailing from Dublin to New South Wales. Oh, that'd take a while. Well, after shitting in a very sloppy bucket for four months, the ship docked at Port Jackson and Lynch was sent to Berrimer, a village founded that very year. Oh, brand spanking new village. Oh, it's got a new pub. Yeah, look at the spanking brand new pub. It's it's state of the art. It is state of the art. John Lynch was a stocky little shit stain, a small portly man who stood at five foot three inches in height. Oh, I already don't like him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, he's lovely. He didn't, care, he didn't care for his new life as a convict labourer. Well, most of them didn't. That was the point. He pretended to work on various farms before he grew tired of leaning on shovels, so he escaped and joined a gang of robbers. Also a popular choice back in the day, they especially were, for the Irish. Well, that's right. They were not very good at it. <laughs> An altercation in 1835 saw him and two of his gang charged for the killing of Tom Smythe, a former friend. Smythe had dogged on him to the traps. 
oh, well, we know that's not cool. That's slang for the Australian police at that time. They were called the traps. Despite Lynch admitting to the crime, I'm glad I killed the bastard. He did not. He walked, for the jury did not believe him. They thought he was lying about committing a murder. That he admitted to. (laughs) What What kind of jury was that? What kind of fucking married at first sight, the bachelor watching jury was that? Well, Tara, the other two charged were not so lucky. They were found guilty and were hanged. Well, they probably denied it. And the jury's like, well, if you deny it, you're guilty. And if you say you did it, you're not. I think some money might have changed hands, Tara. It was whispered on the wind. (laughs) (laughs) This was a plot point for Lynch. He had now tasted human blood. He'd liked it. Well, he didn't actually. And he had gotten away with it. Drink it, did he? Ah, probably. Maybe. (laughs) Okay, so but okay, he got away with murder and he was like, well, that's a fun thing to do. With reckless abandon and an unshakable belief that God was on his side, Lynch would kill and kill again. Oh, people who think God are on their side kind of do that shit, right? But, Tara, it would be another six years before authorities could bring an end to his murderous spree. So he must have been kind of good at it, I guess. Mm. It all began to unravel for Lynch early on the morning of February 19, 1841, when Hugh Tinney, a drover, on his way to Sydney with a team of bollocks, bullocks, bullocks, <laughs> stopped under the Ironstone Bridge just outside Barrima and noticed a dingo digging around a pile of trees and shit. The native dog, with no babies in sight to eat, was trying to get to whatever was beneath the brush. Oh, yeah, babies are their favourite, but they'll eat anything. Oh, I'd really like a baby to eat right now, but I can smell some meat under those trees. What did the dingo find? Well, Hugh Tinney, the drover, decided to take a closer look. He was horrified. Well, at first he said, fuck off, dog. Get the fuck out of here, you fucking dog. There's no babies here. Fuck off. Fuck off. So Hugh Tinney decided to take a closer look. He was horrified to find a body of a man whose skull had been smashed in at the back. Oh, with a knob carry? No. Well, maybe. The man had been dispatched with a heavy blunt object, possibly a knob stick. Yeah. He was lying on his back and his face displayed a strange smile. Oh. Possibly indicating that he had been in good humour when attacked from behind and didn't see it coming. Well, I guess if it's going to happen, it's kind of the best way. The man was later identified as Kearns Landregan. Okay, that sounds like the fakest name I've ever heard. Kearns Landregan. It's kind of like you got you got stuck trying to creep on someone and check out where they lived and they're like, what are you doing here? Who are you? You're like, I'm Kearns Landregan and uh, my <laughs> sister lives here. Her name well, is Bernadette it's, no, it's, it's a good Irish name. It's, it he's an Irish farmer. Like Kearns Landregan. That's my name. doesn't What the fuck are you talking about? You're saying it's not a real name. Okay, someone named Tara. Saraban probably shouldn't pick on other names, right? Sarah Taliban? Yeah, Tartar's Taliban is my stripper name. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and you're very popular, are you? I am very big overseas. Really? Mm hmm. So, Kearns Landregan. Oh, not his real. Okay, apparently it's his real name. He was a local farmhand and he was last seen in the company of a farmer named Dunleavy. Remember that name, Dunleavy. Dunleavy. The pair had dinner two nights earlier at the Woolpack Inn, a short stroll from where Landregan's body now lay. Well, that's lazy murdering. A feisty barmaid from the Woolpack Inn identified the mysterious farmer Dunleavy as a local whose real name was actually Tara Salad Salaban. <laughs> you don't even know my name. <laughs> no. Salamander Jones. <laughs> a mysterious farmer Dunleavy as a local whose real name was actually John Lynch. 
With that and other evidence gathered by police, Lynch was charged with the murder of Kern Landregan. His real name. <laughs> that is his real name. But Lynch maintained his innocence and believed he was untouchable. He would soon be exonerated and freed. No way! No, he's, he's pretty confident. Yeah, well, maybe this dead guy's he, fake name just ruined everything. Hey, he got off before. Why not again? I feel like he's getting off left, right and centre. More than a year after he was charged, Lynch appeared before the Chief Justice of New South Wales, Sir James Dowling, mm-hmm. at the Burrama Courthouse. It took the jury only an hour of deliberating to find him guilty of murder. Well, there goes that idea. You tried to say murder like Baz says from I Extraordinary Story. Mur- murder. Murder. I can't do it. Murder. There's a role to it. Murder. murder. It's all about the R's, baby. <sighs> I don't have a good enough R's. After the guilty verdict was handed down, the court learned that Lynch was also implicated in the murder of at least nine other people. How did they hear that? Well, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. The court also heard how Lynch dodged the hangman's noose in 1835 for killing Tom Smythe. The judge, Sir James Dowling, was outraged. <laughs> there would be no slithering away today for this slippery sucker. Good. He had no hesitation in sentencing Lynch to death by hanging. Ah, oh, Lynch is going to get lynched. John Lynch scratched his ass and looked bored in the dock. <laughs> he smiled his indifference as the judge spoke. You are sentenced to be hanged by your neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. It was whispered on the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Lynch still thought he would get off, and he clung to his throat that, yeah, nah, it wasn't me. Well, I mean, that's as likely defence as any, isn't it? Yeah. He would pursue every avenue of appeal, and only when they were all met with a stern, no fucking way you're going down, <laughs> did John Lynch finally confess to his crimes. The magnitude of his bloodlust was about to be revealed for the world to see. Oh, I feel like it's like when the elevator doors open in The Shining and just like <laughs> blood flows out. Yeah. That first period in high school where you've got to tie their jumper around your waist. Oh, and every period since, Barney. Oh, really? Yeah. I feel for you, man. Oh, don't harp on it. All us ladies got that yeah. shit going on. Just move it. So uh, We suck it up and we move on. So what were we talking about? Oh, I don't know. Someone was admitting to some, like, bloody murders. Hmm. In his confession, Lynch said that he had gone about his business robbing and killing under the belief it was approved by God himself. Oh, seriously? God does not sign off on that shit. On the eve of his rope-dangled date, <laughs> John Lynch called a priest and a police magistrate to his death row cell to record his full confession. And it was a doozy. Jeez, okay, I haven't heard it yet. Do you think he tells the truth in it, or do you think he tries to make himself sound like a massive badass who did shit with one hand? I think there's a lot of bullshit in his confession. Okay, I'm I really... mean, he actually did kill these people. That's been proven. They I know, but do you... Stuff, okay, but... you're the one who knows at this point. Do you think that he's kind of like, oh, I did it with my left hand and it was nothing? Oh, yeah. Look, look the guy's a dick. Clearly a toxic asshole, murdering bastard. But, yeah, please yeah, continue. you should write his Tinder profile. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. No, I'm not going to be a party to him dating anyone. The short-ass tubby murderer began with the (laughs) farmer Mulligan. Lynch said that a brouhaha had erupted with Mulligan over the price of stolen goods. This is what had started him on his path to multiple murder. Well, didn't he already kill someone earlier, though? Yeah, but multiple murder. Oh, right, okay, yeah. Mulligan was only prepared to pay a fraction of what Lynch was asking. This would not do. For for stolen goods? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they have a market value. Oh, they do. An argument ensued 
and Lynch stormed off swearing revenge. He came back shortly as he had forgotten his jacket. He did not. No, he didn't. Okay. He went to a nearby farm at Oldbury where he used to work and stole an eight bollock team and drove them off. Bullock. It's bullock. I said bullock. You said bollock, but I like I like that you said bollock, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stop you right there, buddy. All right, all right. Bullock. Bollock <laughs> team and drove them off. <laughs> he stole an eight bollock team. Just keep going. Like, seriously, we don't have all night. <laughs> also, people will probably find it endearing. All right, this is what he said in his confession. I've broken into them myself. I took them because I wanted to start out again honest. I intended taking the bullocks to Sydney and selling them. But then at Razorback Mountain, I met a cove named Ireland and fell in with him. Okay. So, you know, you met a, you know, met a nice bloke. I, I, guess, um, I guess John Lynch is a bit of a charmer. Yeah, it surprises me to hear this, but, mm. well, you know what? A lot of psychopaths are quite charming superficially, you know. Yeah, so let's hear about this Ireland guy. Ireland was travelling with an Aboriginal boy. Together they were driving a full bollock team. Just, yeah, just keep, just go with it, dude. Its cargo was a load of wheat, bacon and other farmy produce. Other bollocks, right? Which they were to deliver to a Thomas Cowper in Sydney. Now, that's a name, remember that. Cowper. Cowper. It seemed to me, said Lynch in his confession, that it would pay me better to kill Ireland and take the possession of the dray and its load of very saleable booty. Ooh, well, I guess a thief's got to want to get their hands on some You've got to have some ambition. <laughs> it was whispered in the wind. <laughs> but Ireland had taken a shine to Lynch, and when they pulled up for the night, he made him dinner. Oh, well, you don't want to kill a dude that just made you dinner. And offered Lynch one of his cigars. Lynch smoked his new friend's cigar whilst plotting to murder him and his helper and pinch their stuff. He's an asshole. Not cool, Lynch. Not cool at all. Later that night, Lynch couldn't sleep. He'd asked God if he should murder and rob his new friends, but God hadn't got back to him. <laughs> He's busy. Ah, but the good Lord had not said no, and that was good enough for me. The next morning, Lynch <laughs> asked a young boy to help him round up his bullocks. His what? His bollocks. <laughs> okay, sure. They were roaming free across the land. Yeah, they were r roll rolling. Uh, yes, and there were so many of them. It was, it was surprising in number. As the young boy walked ahead in the bush and away from the camp, Lynch snuck up behind him and tomahawked the back of his head. All I needed to kill him was just one top of the tomahawk and he dropped like a lock of wood. Ah, oh, this is what I was talking about. That, like, I just hit them once and they killed over because yeah. I'm awesome. Hmm. And God's on my side. Uh, I don't, yeah. Lynch returned to the camp to find Ireland making breakfast. Oh, well, you're not going to kill a dude who's making you breakfast. I made all this breakfast for you. And where's my boy? Lynch explained that the boy was off looking for the bollocks <laughs> and he should eat without him. When Ireland was about to serve breakfast, Lynch pointed into the scrub. What's that be causing that noise over there? As Ireland turned to look, Lynch went at his head with the tomahawk. Oh. As he lay dead, Lynch ate three breakfasts before oh. dragging the bodies to a big you... crack between two boulders and covering them with trees and rocks. What a greedy bastard. This Ireland guy sounds cool. I would totally have gone out with him. He provides food and he's nice. <laughs> what more could one yeah, want? Yeah, and what bollocks? I mean bullocks. Uh, yeah, but, but oh, you said it then. <laughs> what a load of bullocks. Then Lynch released his term of bullocks. Andre, that's a, that's his cart, by the way. Hey, you said it. And pointed them towards Berrimer. Slapped their asses and off they went. Lynch was hoping someone would find them and return them to the old Berry farm and nothing more would come of this theft. 
Oh, yeah. No, they weren't stolen. They just went on, on a sort of like impromptu vacation. But get this, Tara. Then mm. he stole Ireland's team. Of course he did, because it had like all this bacon and well, stuff. Well, it was laden with bouté. Mm, bouté is the best kind of bounty. Lynch thanked the Lord for his new bounty and sat down. He was in no hurry and stayed at the camp for two days. On the second day, he met two men named Lag and Lee. Oh, those sound like fake names too. I'm just going to shut up about what sounds like a Lag fake name. Lag and Lee. Yeah, Lagly. Well, these, they're, 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 these are knockabout guys. You'll mm, like these guys. They sound very unlikely. They were in charge of a team of horses. Lynch said he enjoyed the company of the two men and they partied. They ate sausages, <laughs> they drank some rum, and they sang some songs. <laughs> this is total Barney partying. There's sausages, there's booze, there's Some singing. singing. Maybe some dancing? Oh, whoa. The men even performed an Irish dance for Lynch. There you go. He liked their jig and he liked them. And Lynch decided not to kill the man with his tomahawk as they slept. Oh, wow. I bet there isn't really a moral we can draw from this story. But no. I like the thought that dancing happily makes someone not want to kill you. Yeah. I live my life by that, actually. That's why I'm alive to this day. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Happy dancing. It's kept me alive till now. Might also get me killed later, though. The next morning, Lag and Lee invited <laughs> Lynch to travel with them. Why don't you just come with us? Come down to roll with us. It's too much alliteration. They can't do it. Too many L's. All right. As they approached Liverpool, just out of <laughs> south of Sydney, Lynch was surprised when a man canted his horse alongside the dray that Lynch was driving and asked him what the fuck he was doing driving his team. It was Thomas Cowper. Oh, Cowper. You told me to keep an eye out yeah, for him. the owner of the dray and produce. Lynch was quick. He smiled and said... I'm glad I've seen you. I was just wondering whether I'd knock into you. The fact is that your man, Island, has taken ill back there and begged me to take the load up to Sydney for you. He said I'd probably meet you somewhere along the way. Lynch told him that Island had taken poorly and that he had left the boy to look after him at the camp. The Fuzla Cowper... That's fool, right? Fuzla? Fuzla! The Fuzla Cowper thanked him and was even more grateful when Lynch agreed to continue to Sydney with the Bukter while Cowper went back and looked for Ireland. Lynch arranged to meet Cowper in Sydney in a few days. He said goodbye to Lag and Lee. Bye, lads. You guys are my favourite people on earth. That's why I didn't yeah. kill you. So they, they turned off and went towards Parramatta. And Lynch- they they had no knowledge that like it was only their charisma oh, that kept them alive. They came close, man. I know. They're just like, hey, yo, yeah. we love everything. Let's eat bacon and dance together. Have yeah. some rum. Here's some a sausage. <laughs> and that's how you stay alive in the, in the old bush. Wow. Are you an historian? Yes. It was whispered on the <laughs> Lynch drove all day and all night and reached Sydney two days before his scheduled time to meet Cowper. He knew time was short because Cowper would eventually be on his trail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lynch then employed the services of a local pisshead to sell the produce. Hey, yes, potato. Is that? My mum was very mean. And this is my potato. That's uh, uh, bacon. Oh, that's great. Now do your drunk impersonation. Oh, okay. That would sound a little bit more like this. He reasoned that it would be hard for this man to report him if questioned by the police. (gasps) Oh, it's a potato. And he could stick to his story about Ireland being taken poorly and add that the booty had been stolen from the back of the dray while his back was turned. Lynch headed out of town counting his cash. He headed towards the Berrima Road. There he had another surprise that confirmed that indeed he had the Lord in his back pocket. No, oh, really? What happened? As I neared the Georges River, I saw Chief Constable McAllister of Campbelltown 
and fearing he'd recognise me, I turned into a cross-track. This close shave frightened the living daylights out of me, and I decided that I would get rid of Cowper's team at the first opportunity, as it could only eventually get me into hot soup. <laughs> hot soup? Hot soup. I hope it was Tom Yum, because that's my favourite. Oh, I like that soup too. As Lynch neared Razorback Mountain, where he had dispatched Ireland and the boy, he ran into the Frasers, a father and son who were travelling towards Berrima. Lynch eyeballed the team and took an immediate fancy to them. Oh, he wanted to steal their shit. He wanted to steal their shit. I hope these guys dance and get, a- get away. He then began to plot the Fraser's demise and the theft of their stuff. They travelled to a camp at the Bargo Bush, and this is what he said in his confession. We all had supper, and then I crawled under my dray with the intention of sleeping. No sooner had I got there that I saw a trooper ride into the camp. He asked Fraser if he had seen the dray I'd stolen from Cowper. Fraser shook his head and said, Nah, I, didn't, I don't know anything about it. The trooper didn't see me under the dray, and much to my delight, he rode off. Well, that was a freebie. That was a close call, wasn't it? Mm. I guess God really is on his side. Well, yet again, the Lord saved his (sighs) ass from capture. He looked to the heavens and crossed himself. Oh, thank you a lot. (sighs) Deluded John Lynch believed he was invincible and after consulting again with the Lord, decided that the Frasers had to be killed and their team pinched. Well, I mean, it's sort of a decision he would have come to anyway. So this was his plan, Tara. Yeah, it's always his plan. It was a solid plan. It was whispered on the wind. (laughs) (laughs) At some point during the night, Lynch set his bullock team free. The next day, Lynch told the Frasers, Ah, me team appears to have strayed. I'll have to go home and fetch another. Meanwhile, I'd better hide the dray. Could you give me a hand? The poor, unsuspecting Frasers were happy to help John Lynch. After they had hidden the dray, they travelled and then made camp for the night. I like that they're willing to help him, even though sometimes he sounds Irish and sometimes he doesn't. Yeah, but yeah. I guess they just seem normal to them. Yeah. Lynch recalls, In the morning, young Fraser and I went in the search of horses. I put on my coat so as if to hide the tomahawk. I let the wee youngster go ahead. Then, when they were in the bush, I crept up behind him and I hit him with one blow and the young fellow felt like a log of wood. Oh, good old one blow John Lynch, God's favourite murderer. Lynch then returned to the camp with one horse. The boy's father asked about the whereabouts of his son. When I told him he was looking for the other horse, Lynch then pointed to what he said was his son in the bushes and when the man turned to look, he hit him. One time with a tomahawk and he died. A nice one on the back of the head and he dropped like a lock of wood. Oh my God, this guy is such a wanker. After thanking the Lord for his help in murdering the Frasers, Lynch dragged their bodies into the bush and buried them in a shallow grave. He then hitched their team of horses to the tray. This was when he decided to head towards the Mulligan farm to feast on a nice bowl of ice-cold revenge. Okay, so it's a farm. It's not just a guy. I don't like the sound of any of this. As he neared the farmhouse, he saw Mrs Mulligan sitting in a rocking chair on the porch. Please leave her alone. Lynch asked her about the whereabouts of her husband, son and daughter. Mrs Mulligan said, they're in the fields working. What do you want? Also, she's Irish sometimes uh, too. Probably. Mrs Mulligan said, they're in the fields working. What do you want? The 30 pounds your husband owes me, Lynch replied. What 30 pounds, she asked. You know very well what. For the articles which I got from highway robberies that I did at the risk of my own life, which your old man was supposed to be holding for me, Lynch said. There is only nine pounds in the house, Mrs. Mulligan replied. I can't believe that she told him that they had any money. In his confession, Lynch said, I was much discouraged by her putting me off, but I didn't want to show it. 
Being a fair man, I decided to wait until her husband returned and give him the chance to pay me my money. And if he refused, then I would see to it that he would meet the Almighty. Oh, my God. So he's a fair man now. Oh, he's a fair man. Oh, you fucking kidding me. So Lynch decided a walk to the Black Horse Hotel in Berrima was in order so he could buy some rum. Okay. First decision he's made that I agree with. Mm. On his return, he saw Mr. and Mrs. Mulligan together on the veranda. Mrs. Mulligan fetched glasses for the rum and they sat on the veranda drinking and chatting. Lynch eventually brought up the matter at hand. So what about me 30 quid? Mr. Mulligan asked him to be reasonable about the amount. Lynch left the veranda and sat on a log nearby. He thought he'd better ask the Lord about what to do next. The Lord told Lynch to murder the Mulligans. Oh, yeah, right. Maybe sometimes it's not God talking to you. It's just your own sick, twisted, stupid-ass, murderous brain, right? Yeah, I think I'll go with that too. After Mr. Mulligan had gone back to the fields and Mrs. Mulligan had gone into the house, Lynch took their young son, Johnny, out the back to cut some wood for no, his mother. No, not Johnny. Out of sight, Lynch killed the boy with a single blow from his axe. Oh, yeah, another single blow murder because he's renowned for those. And he they then, happen all the time. He then covered his body with, body with scrub and returned to the house. Where's Johnny, Mrs. Mulligan asked. Gone to the paddock with the horses, Lynch said. Mrs. Mulligan must have suspected that something was amiss because she became hysterical, ran outside and told Lynch to fire his gun to attract attention. What's the problem, Mrs. he asked. He's all right. I only saw him a few minutes ago. But the woman insisted that Lynch shoot his gun. But if I do that, that will alert the police, Lynch said as Mr. Mulligan appeared and asked what the fuck was going on. <laughs> Both the Mulligans were suspicious now. In a state, Mrs. Mulligan returned to the house while her husband went searching for little Johnny. Lynch ran up behind him and with one swing of the axe killed him. After dragging the body into the woods, Lynch saw Mrs. Mulligan strolling towards him. He kicked her feet out from under her and axed her to death. Now to the Mulligan's 14-year-old daughter, Mary, who was no, in the house. No, no, don't go near her. Oh, I'm sorry, this is part of no, the No, I don't want him to go near her. Yeah, this isn't good. As he entered, he saw her in the kitchen frozen in terror. She had witnessed at least one of the murders. In his confession, he says... I saw her standing behind a table holding a butcher's knife. She was sobbing with fear and trembling violently. Then I yelled, Put that knife down! I told her, I don't want to kill you, but if I let you live, you'll only put me away. I then ordered her to get on her knees and pray as she only had ten minutes to live. Lynch took the terrified girl into the bedroom and raped her. I told him not to go near her. I then brought her back out into the kitchen and tried to comfort her, saying her life was full of trouble and that she'd be better off dead. Then I mercifully distracted her attention and as she turned away, I struck her with the axe and she fell down dead without a murmur. Okay, I really, really hate this guy. Yeah, he's, he's a shithead. He's a horrible man. And he's so, like, thinks he's justified. It's disgusting. Yeah, it sucks. Lynch stacked the mulligan's body in a pile in the bush and set them alight. They all burnt like bags of fat, he said. I bet he'd burn like a bag of fat if I had a chance and a lighter around him. It was now time to get rid of the Mulligan's possessions and take over the farm as if it were his own. Every personal item of all the dead family's clothing were burned. Then he forged a deed of assignment stating that John Mulligan had signed over the farm and all its effects to John Dunleavy. Lynch, now known as Dunleavy, even hired a couple to run the farm for him while he took the produce to markets. The bodies of all the people he had murdered hadn't been discovered and no one seemed to be looking for them. For the next six months, Lynch lived a charmed life. 
And had it not been for his murder of Kearns Landregan... If that was his real name. He might have lived his life on the Mulligans farm with no trouble. John Dunleavy, Acker Lynch, was actually a very good farmer. He was loved by his staff and trusted by his creditors and was thought to be a gentle and considerate man. Oh, wow. He really is good at faking humanity, isn't he? Lynch was convinced that he was under the protection of God and well beyond capture. Maybe that is why he committed his 10th murder, leaving clues and witnesses everywhere. He hadn't even gone to the trouble to prepare an alibi. In his confession, Lynch said that he met Landregan on his way back from Sydney and offered him a job on his farm. As they passed Crisp's Inn, Landregan got nervous and explained to Lynch that he didn't want to be seen by the publican Crisp, for he was in trouble for stealing a bundle of clothes from him. After I heard that, I was determined to get rid of him, said Lynch. What? I mean, sorry, I heard you, but why? Yes, Lynch himself had a history of theft, but now he was the respectable father, John Don Levy, and he didn't care for thieving. Oh, you hypocrite. After which they had a spot of dinner together at a different pub, the Woolpack Inn. Ah, uh, you remember with the feisty barmaid? Well, I mean, I like to think they're everywhere. Their meal was witnessed by all the staff and dozens of patrons. Then Lynch and Landregan went to the Ironside Bridge where they set up camp for the night. As Landregan sat on a log laughing away to a joke that Lynch had told him, Lynch crept up behind him and did his tomahawk thing. Oh, well, so he was actually laughing when he got killed. Yeah, apparently. Oh. He had a smile on his face. I don't even know if that's physically possible, but... Ah, uh, yeah. let's not it's, go there. It, it's what it says. You know, there's a lot of conflicting reports that I read in newspapers. It's hard with the oldie stuff. It really is. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, his confession... Yeah. Oh, my God, he's so full of shit. Anyway... So he fell to the ground unconscious with the smile still on his face. It took a few more blows to smash him in the back of the head and kill him. Lynch then pinched 40 pounds from the dead man's wallet. And so ended his confession. The next morning, April 22, 1842, John Lynch was hanged at Berrimer Jail. Hang the bastard, I say. Yeah. So, Tara, there you have it. That makes John Lynch Australia's most prolific individual serial killer with a tally of 10 kills. Yeah, I don't think we've actually had, like, there have been people who killed together that have done more, but for an individual in this country, that, that, that's yeah. the bomb, for want of a better word. So to finish this story, let's hear what Justice Dowling said when he gave him the death penalty. Please tell me that he was very harsh because this guy is so horrible and evil and gross. John Lynch, the trade in blood which has so long marked your career, is it at last terminated? Not by any sense of remorse or the setting of any appetite for slaughter on your part, but by the energy of a few zealous spirits roused by the frightful picture of atrocity which the last tragic passage of your worthless life exhibits. It is now credibly believed that no less than ten individuals have fallen by your hands. How many more have been violently ushered into the next world remains undiscovered, save it for the dark pages of your memory. Yeah. Yes, what he said. Yeah. I'm okay. sure Justice Dowling had a big bushy moustache too. Oh, Dowling. Hmm. I'm sure he did as well, and uh, he hit the nail on the head. What a revolting, horrible little fuckknuckle that guy was. Yeah, he really was horrible. Wow. When we go ye oldie, it's normally like seems more fun than that, but that was really dark. Yeah, it got pretty dark towards the end there, oh, didn't it? Oh, man. I don't like that guy at all. I want to hmm. go piss on his grave. Hey, Tara, I think it's time for Aussie Az. I'm not really sure what that is. What is it? And give it to me. 
Aussie as a tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Although one. sometimes they're just about big animals that want to kill you in this country. Tell me one now, whisper it into the wind. I will whisper it into the wind. Well, I know, okay, it's a palate cleanser so that we don't leave our listeners wanting to cry and die and feel the sick sads mm, after our show. You need to give me a second so that I can do that because your case made me upset. Electrician Bridie Morrow was on her way home from a job when she got a call from one of her regular customers at Mossman in North Queensland. I've removed snakes from her switchboard before. I guess that's what they're calling it. And so she called me up and said, hey, we have this snake under the house and it has actually eaten the family cat, Bridie said. What? Yes. The electrician, who had previously worked as a wildlife handler for 15 years, said she was shocked when she saw the size of the scrub python. I could see it all coiled up and I'm thinking, wow, that is a big snake. Where is this? Um, this is in North Queensland. I mean, okay. come on. Oh, yeah. I should say that this was brought to my attention by Lee Lee as well, by the way. Oh, thanks, Lee Lee. But it's total Erica bait, don't you think? Oh, little yeah. bitty's going to be yeah, all over this yeah, shit. Yeah, little bitty's going to be all over this shit. Anyway, um, Bridie, the electrician, said, I felt pretty sorry for them because obviously they had the children there. It is not real pretty when pythons take something out. I can testify to that. Um, when I was seven, I came home from school and there was a really big python, like, I don't know, at least nine feet long. And it was wrapped around my brother's kitten and just squeezing the life out of it. Well, it survived, right? No. Um, and I, I, told, I told my stepdad, um, but my brother was pissed at me for months, if not years, that I didn't just somehow stop it from killing. What, you were seven? Yeah. Yeah, oh, well, you and know. And it crushed this little kitten. Um, yeah, it, it wound oh, all the way around her. Crazy. And it just, she was in the middle of this coiled up snake on the table in the dining room. And I was just like, Mom, Johnny, ah. Um, and they they eventually got it off her. But um, she, she'd she been, they crushed all the bones in her body because that's often what they do first is they wind around them and they, yeah, they, wow. they constrict them like a boa constrictor. My brother's probably still pissed at me for that. I was seven, okay? I only killed cows with spades <laughs> by accident. It's not your fault, Tara. Well, thank you. I would like to think so. Anyway, back to this. Anyway, uh... Bridie crawled under the house and pulled out the eight kilo snake, which was at least 12 feet long and looking pretty fat in the middle on account of having just swallowed a cat alive whole. <sighs> She realised she didn't have a bag big enough to house the pet eater and had to improvise by putting it in her toolbox. Bridie later released a snake in remote bushland, but not before playing a practical joke on one of her colleagues by asking him to help her pull out a cable drum from her toolbox. My guys that I work with are like, it's probably a snake. And I was like, oh, damn, they know me too well, she oh, said. Yeah. When I try and do <laughs> shit like that to you, you just go, no, Barney. No, Barney, no. Yeah. Um, so another customer last year had two green tree snakes living in her switchboard and she said, Bridie, the meter man won't even come. He'd just open the switchboard and go, nope, yeah. and shut it. I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah, nope. The electrician said she only ever removed snakes from properties where they were likely to cause damage or were a threat. She said, the way I look at it is, if they enter someone's home or they're causing a bit of a threat to pets or small kids, I'll move them. But if they're just moving through someone's yard, I'll be like, oh, don't worry about it. Just like, let it be. Yeah, wow. <laughs> North Queensland giant snakes. It's mm. real. Flat Earth is Australia's real and so are the snakes.
Yeah, well, I'm glad I um, live in Brunswick and we don't have snakes I like that. I actually, the reason why I moved to the city, one of the many reasons was that I enjoy no snakes indoors. I enjoy mm. no snakes indoors very much because yeah. I grew up with all the snakes all the time. Look, I like snakes. Just, I just do don't not. come into my house. Well, that's why I don't like them because they used to come into my house. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. If you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And thank you to Margaret Sel- Salazar for and buying us a few drinks. Ruby. There's also a link to our merch store. So I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And we just did some more bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It does really help us. Feel free to join our awesome Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week, even if we're sick, because that's that's just what we do. That's what we do. (laughs) Because I've been feeling shit, but it doesn't matter. We know people that feel way worse. That's right. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote all those reviews myself. They will whisper in the wind. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, but normally when we go to on my head since 1997. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.